You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. The passage we're looking at today is just a short account. It's just four verses and it's chapter two, verse 11 to 14. Last week we saw... Uh, Paul going to Jerusalem and what was going on there. This is where Peter, on the other hand, returns the favor and comes to Antioch. This is what it says. But when Cephas, or that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Fearing the circumcision party or the Jewish people. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? God, I pray now that as we quickly look at your word in this account, that's really important to us as we un- unpeel what is the gospel. I pray now that we would these words would penetrate our hearts, uh, that we would take a look at our own hearts, and, and if there is a sense of self-righteousness, which all of this is true. This is for all of us. There is The self-righteousness is something we all struggle with. And I pray that that would be exposed that we would seek grace that you offer which is limitless to us and I pray this is not something where it's like we go from self-righteousness to grace but that your grace would be fresh and new to us today we don't live on yesterday's grace but we need it fresh and new to us each morning so I pray that that would happen we pray for this in your name amen last night Nikki was watching a documentary on Netflix and it was called Untold. It's one of those untold documentaries on a sports thing. There's a bunch of them. This is on a, a, a football player named Manti Teo. If you've seen the documentary called The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist. And if you ever, if you know anything about Manti Teo, I didn't know. I mean, I knew before the documentary uh, that everyone made fun of him. Because basically his story was he kept on about a year-long relationship with a woman, or he thought a woman, online, where they talked every day. And Manti Teo, he was a Christian and, and you know, someone that people looked up to, respectable guy, went to University of Notre Dame and be- became defensive captain. And I remember watching Manti Teo, and I believe the Rose Bowl a number of years ago. Uh, and just a respected player in the college world, and you can take a look at the documentary yourself. But the biggest thing that came out about Manti Teo was was this story about this girlfriend who passed away, and uh, and it, it made kind of national headlines. And the next thing you knew was this this girlfriend didn't actually even exist. So Manti Teo uh, got what's called catfished by a made-up person online who wasn't even a girl. It was a guy. And so Manti Teo was, was, was basically had this image in his head of false pictures that 
that didn't even, this girl didn't even exist. They texted, they called. But the promise of what life would look like for Manti Teo, man, the, uh, <laughs> the payoff was not anywhere near what the promise was. In fact, it ended up to be a lie. Similarly, as I was watching that documentary, I couldn't help, couldn't help think of our struggle with self-righteousness or religion. Where we look at it from the outside, and maybe all of us have a time in life where, we look at, where we've, we've been in a religious system, and the promise of that was, was greater than the actual payoff. Something all of us are susceptible to is a self-righteousness and we're susceptible to its charms. Self-righteousness is this, this belief that you can earn favor from God or from others and the payoff, I would say, is never as good as the promise. And I want to say this right off the hop. As we look at this passage, all of us struggle with self-righteousness. You know, we've looked at this before through this series where we've thought, Aaron, we're all about grace here. We believe in the gospel of grace. That may be true, but it doesn't, doesn't mean that we don't struggle with self-righteousness anymore, that we can be pulled back into it. All of us struggle with self-righteousness. I mean, in this passage we just read, this is Peter. I mean, Peter, the one who needed grace more than any other. This is the guy who denied knowing Jesus three times. This was the guy who spoke first and then had to ask... Uh, <laughs> they had to ask for forgiveness afterwards. This was the screw-up. This was the guy who knew that his own righteousness could never, he could never live up to. This was an apostle of the church who fiercely preached at Pentecost. He'd been to prison twice for the name of Jesus. He wrote scripture, for crying out loud. Like this guy wrote scripture. And he falls to the charms of self-righteousness. So as I said, the passage we looked at last week, Paul went to Jerusalem. And of course, we, if you want to take a look at that or listen to it, you can find it on Spotify or other podcast sites, or you can look at it on YouTube. But the issue that came to light in the previous passage was, was Titus, that Peter did not force Titus to be circumcised. He did not force Titus to become a Jew. And he gave commendation to Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. And now Peter returns the favor and comes to Antioch. And here's what happens. It says, before certain men came from James, it says Peter was eating with Gentiles. Now, you got to understand, this is a big deal. For us, when we walk into a coffee shop, we have no problem, right, sitting down with anybody and, and, and sharing a coffee, right? We have no problem with that. But back then in the ancient world, table fellowship was a huge deal. It was a powerful symbol of association. You didn't sit down with someone who wasn't on the same level as you. That was like, that was a humbling thing. You, didn't, you wouldn't share fellowship with them. You know, I'm reminded of Jesus that there were me this was the big offense to uh, what, what Jesus practiced. As it says, he's, he eats with sinners. Right? That's what, that's what, that was the big offense. He eats with sinners. No, I'm fine. I'm, okay, you're good. Thank you. I was good. Apparently I'm not, so... I'm going to have to hold my Bible anyway, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be here the whole time. 
But that was the big offense when it came to the religious leaders of the day. This is why. What is that rabbi doing eating with sinners, people who are not at his same level? We are the only ones worthy enough to be in his presence, to share his table with him. And yet Jesus, this rabbi, was sharing his table with fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors. And the offense was he they're not worthy of his presence. You know, they're right and wrong. Because they believe worthiness could be bought, it could be earned, it could be impressed upon by their credentials, by their religious experience. <laughs> now, Nikki, you've caused me some problems here. Now i got to get to my second page. Hold on. <laughs> no, I had it figured out. We're going to fight on the way home after this. Hold on. I don't need, I don't need, this is easier. There we go. Yeah, they thought worthiness could be bought, that it was won by their, by their religious credentials, by their accomplishments. But Jesus was about grace, that his table, his presence, was given to them as an extension of his grace. So as Peter sits with these Gentiles, he's taking the heart of Jesus. You know, they share a table not because they earned it, but because they have a common experience of the grace of God. And by that act of sharing his table with the Gentiles, he showed his commendation for Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, that we both believe in the same gospel, and we affirm one another. Now, here's the big part in the passage, though. And as I got through, I just this was ringing in my head. Theology what we believe about God and what he says in his word. Theology, it is not only communicated through words. Theology is communicated through a lot of other things. Theology is not only communicated through words. Because as powerful as an image as that was, and Peter could write whatever letters or epistles that he wanted, something far more powerful was about to happen so powerful it needed to be confronted and corrected. Because it says, before certain men came from James, it says Peter was eating with Gentiles in verse 12. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He drew back and separated himself. Now, do you think a great sermon on the grace of God speaks louder than that action? You think a, Peter could preach a great sermon on the grace of God and it would speak louder than what he just did? I don't think so. You think a letter or a commendation is going to speak louder than what, the, what has just been witnessed in that room? Do you think a systematic theology speaks louder than that action that Peter just did? I don't think so. See, theology is often communicated far greater in our action than in the words that we say or, the, or that we write. You know, you wonder why people get turned off of this, you know, church. You wonder why people get turned off of this? It's because the words that are spitting from the pulpit don't line up with the actions in the pew. You see, theology is communicated much more than through sermons. It's, through communi it's communicated with how you treat one another. That's what you believe. The ancient Greeks would perform plays. 
you know, in a theater. And now make, they didn't use makeup. Makeup at that time was not very advanced. What they would do in those plays is they'd hold up a mask on a stick in front of their face and then they'd play a part. That's, that's what they would do when, they, when there was a theater or when they, they, they performed a play. They would hold up a mask on a stick and to play a part. And that was called, in the Greek, hypocrisis. Sounds familiar, right? To play a part was the Greek word hypocrisis. What does that remind you of? Yeah, it's where we get a wor another word in our English derivative called hypocrisy. See, Paul's response in verse 13 and 14 as he sees Peter playing a part, it says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And Paul says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, if you're a Jew and you live like a Gentile, how can you expect a Jew uh, or, uh, and not like a, uh, like a Jew? How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Remember, this was the same person who says, no, Paul, we commend your ministry. We're not going to force Titus to be circumcised. Remember what I said last week? You know, we might say we cling to the grace of God. He say, you know, we may not force people, but we do shame them. We have a system of Christian hierarchy that, you know, we're not going to force you, but you're still a lesser Christian than those who do what we want you to do. We shame them. We may not force, but we disassociate. I wasn't just making that up into the air. This, here it is. This was happening. Okay, we're not going to force Titus, but Peter here proves that there's still higher Christians and lower Christians. We're not going to force you, but we're going to disassociate from you. Here it is. And if at the root of self-righteousness is a desire for approval and favor on your own terms, on your own terms, then when there, is a when there is a hypocrisy, when there is a difference in how one person is treated over another, what does that say? What are we communicating in our desire for favor that one person is treated differently than another person? What is that? What are we actually communicating when we do that? What are we communicating? That one person matters and the other doesn't to you. You know what I'm saying here? Like in our desire for favor from people, if we treat one person different than another, what we're saying is that person matters and this one doesn't. Because yeah, Peter is good to be with these guys. He's good to have table fellowship until the big wigs show up to the dinner. Those guys really matter. Parents, listen up. Parents, listen up. What does it say to your children when there's a discrepancy between the way you act in a sanctuary and the way you act in your living room? What's that say to your kids? That you care more about what the people in the church think about you than what your own family thinks about you? Some people matter and some don't. Now listen. Now the answer, I don't want to like make this heavy because the answer is not, okay, church, do better. <laughs> that can't be the answer. It can't be like, do grace better. That's the opposite. 
This just leads to a black hole. L listen, all of us struggle with this. All of us struggle with self-righteousness, like Peter did in this passage. All of us are tempted to be seduced to the charms of self-righteousness. And I think when there's a denial, like the fear is as a church, we're like, we're all about grace. When there, we would never struggle with this. When there's a denial, that's kind of the proof that we do struggle with self-righteousness. And those quick to peg another as self-righteousness, we better check that the glasses we're looking through might, might, might not be a mirror that's staring back at us. When we define self-righteousness by the other, like that other church is the self-righteous church, that other family is the self-righteous church, that other worldview is the self-righteous worldview, could not possibly be me. You know, I've seen this happen, where those who have been fed up with a self-righteous religious system or worldview, guess what? They just switch teams to another self-righteous worldview. So they get angry at an angry, self-righteous religion, but then they become an angry, self-righteous progressive. Or they're an angry, self-righteous progressive, so they go into an angry, self-righteous religion. It's like you're trading jerseys, but the problem is still not solved. Of course, the answer is we have to come back to the throne of grace every day. To come boldly, to come confidently back to the throne of grace. And as I said in my prayer at the beginning, we don't live on yesterday's grace. We need fresh grace each and every day from God. And that's true of all of us. If that grace is there, then why is self-righteousness so attractive? All of our Bible studies actually begin this week. And that's a question that Hopefully your leader asks you. <laughs> Kale, speaking of reading my emails, which has been already sent. <laughs> this isn't for a couple of days, so. Which, by the way, if you haven't joined a Bible study and you'd like to, there's still a few available. There's, some, there's still some people trickling in. And uh, so you're still welcome to join those that are still available. You're going to be discussing this question. Why is self-righteousness so attractive? I think there's a plethora of answers. There's two from this passage, though, that I want to address, and then we're done. The first one is this. One reason we struggle with self-righteousness, and Garrett actually said this really well last week. We want life to be simple. We want life to be simple. Like life is complex and there's a desire for it to be simple. Give me simple answers, simple instructions, and then if you do A, B, and C, all will be well for you. Nikki's reading a book and I was, she was reading one of the chapters to me and one of the quotes stuck out to me. It says, no one wants to be a Pharisee but we all want to feel like a Pharisee. You know, we as a, you know, you've probably been in church before where, we're, you know, we bash Pharisees and we're like, no one wants to be a Pharisee. But we all want to feel like a Pharisee. We want simple answers, simple statements that I abide by and all will be well. Garrett talked about his story of that, where his life was chaotic and here's the answer. 
Just give me that simple A, B, and C. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it, and everything will be good again. But we also know life is not that simple. Life is far more <laughs> complicated. I, I don't. I think our desire for simplicity. I, I don't think it's. You know, I don't think it's random. That probably in our modern day. The most pharisaical forum requires you to put simple statements online called Twitter, <laughs> right? I don't think there's, like, I think there's a correlation between those two things. Twitter might be the most pharisaical place in our modern day world. Life is far more complicated, though. You know, the people of God, when they were coming out of Egypt, Paul is using that analogy when it talks about going back to self-righteousness you're coming you're going back into slavery you're putting the chains back on your own hands and rather than walk through the unknown when the people of god were were going to the promised land rather than walk through the unknown the uncertainty where they actually have to trust the grace of god what did they do when things got complex they wanted to go back put the chains back on my own hands why because it was simple. We know where our next meal's coming from. Let's go back to Egypt where we were slaves, where it's simple, where I have answers, rather than walk through the uncertainty and unknowns of life. Given the choice between, as this book that read, Nikki's reading, which I thought was fascinating, given the choice between knowledge or life, most of us choose knowledge. We just want to know. Peter here, rather than give, give the problem up to God and have to walk through the uncertainty of what are these Jews going to think about me, he knows what will appease the people. So he does it. You know, we know how to play the part. You know what's expected of you, but behind closed doors, things change. Maybe the gr greatest mark of grace, we don't talk about this a lot, maybe the greatest mark of grace in someone's life is consistency that through the ebbs and flows and chaos of life there's the same God that I'm trusting in and I don't have to be someone else I don't have to play a part which means you can be weak at church just as much as you can be weak at home you can be strong at church just as much as you can be strong at home because your standing in God is secure whether you obtain favor from others or not. So we want life to be simple. Secondly, we want life to feel secure because we feel fragile. I think for me, this is the big one. We want life to feel secure. I want to feel strong because I feel fragile. Peter, it says the main reason that he was a hypocrite says he drew back and separated himself and he feared the circumcision party it's an amazing how uh what's the word i'm looking for now i'm having a brain fart i can't think of it how contagious hypocrisy is you know when one person gives in to the problem then the rest seem to follow it even barnabas it says was le led astray by the hypocrisy but peter the main reason was because he was afraid what would they think of me Am I going to lose respect? I think we assume that the most confident legalists have a high view of themselves. That's not true. 
They actually have the, other, the opposite problem. They have such a low view of themselves that they're fragile. And they, they rely on others to give them confidence in who they are. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying here? We assume self-centered people have such a high view of themselves and a confident view of themselves. That's not true. They have a fragile view of themselves. It's not too high, it's too low. Because you've got to claim it through comparison, through gathering attention for yourself. You need to claim it because you have too low opinion of yourself. Pastors can be foremost problem with this. It's that they're not clinging to the grace of God, but they cling to how full the church is. How much praise they get. I mean, we're all susceptible to this, but this is, you know, as a leader, this, this is a big deal because you feel insecure. You feel fragile. That's why we need fresh grace every single day. Because grace asserts that your identity is firm before God, which means you don't have to use others, but rather you can sacrifice for them because you're secure in God.